0: Uh, Many of you know, I I have three daughters, and two of them are teenagers. One of them was up here singing uh, just a little bit ago. But my oldest daughter, Olivia, she's 15. And over the years, we've we've talked about, she's asked us, you know, about how Sarah and I are dating when we were in high school. And she asked when we started dating. And so I, I told her that when I was in high school, I started dating when I was, I had my first girlfriend when I was 16. And Sarah had her first boyfriend when she was 16, and so Olivia's always had it in her head that when she turns 16, she's allowed to date. Now, I don't know how she got this in her head, because we've not agreed to this, okay? But uh, that's just where she's landed. You know, we, we want to make sure things are right. It depends on who you're dating and, you know, make sure on some maturity things. But she turns 16 in November, so that's kind of approaching. That's a little scary. Well, just last month... Uh, Olivia informed me that she wants to wait, she's a freshman, she wants to wait until she's at least, at least a senior in high school or later before she starts dating. So when, yeah, yeah, right? When she did this, I made her repeat it, no joke, I made her repeat it while I, while I videoed her with my phone. And then I sent it off to family so that I have proof that this is true I, I, this is very true, by the way. She't let she told me I could tell the story, but she told me I could not show the video, because I wanted to show the video as proof to every one of you. But when she told me she wanted to wait till she's at least a senior in high school to begin dating, I thought, "This is good news. <laughs> this is good news. Well, that's, that's the series we've started. We started a, a series a couple of weeks ago called Good News. And, and we've told you that the word gospel literally means good news. The gospel is the good news of the amazing story of the sinless life, sacrificial death, and powerful resurrection of the historically real person known as Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Christ. And so the premise of this series is to remind us that the gospel This good news has the power to transform every aspect of our lives, and that it should be transforming every aspect of our lives. So in week one, we talked about how the good news transforms how we live, specifically how we treat others, how we love others, especially those we disagree with, how we love those who aren't easy to love. And then last week we talked about how the good news transforms our relationships, and specifically our marriages, and we said that it really all boils down to two words, mutual submission. Because Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, because Jesus owed us nothing and gave us everything, we should imitate him in our relationships and especially in our marriages. So today, we want to talk about how the good news transforms an entire group of people. And not just any group of people. I'm talking about how the good news transforms a local church. A local church. And hopefully, you're kind of seeing the progression of the transforming power of the gospel. First, it's, it's me. I believe the gospel and accept it, and it changes me. It changes my heart, my behavior. It changes how I live, how I love. And then... It it changes my relationships, right? All of my relationships, including my marriage. And then it shapes and defines our faith community. That is the local church, the body of Christ. It changes the, the local church. So we are a local church, part of the larger body of Christ called the church, capital C Church. In Matthew chapter 16, the apostle Peter made this incredible profession of his belief in who Jesus is And we call it now the good confession. But he said to Jesus, he said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus blessed Peter. And he said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. So he he went by Simon and and Jesus is saying, you're going to go by Peter. You are Peter. And on this rock, Peter means rock. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And from this moment, Jesus would eventually make his way to to Jerusalem and to Calvary and he would willingly give his life as a sacrifice for sins. And though the disciples thought that all was lost when he died... Jesus then rose from the dead on that third day, and he would commission his followers to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations. And that's what they began to do making disciples, building his church. That became the primary objective of Jesus' followers. Their passion and commitment to the singular cause, the cause of Christ, brought God's blessing and favor. So much so that the small band of disciples became this thriving, diverse, influential group of people known as the family of believers. In fact, that's how Peter referred to them in the second chapter of his first letter. He referred to them as the family of believers. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we actually used part of this chapter last week as a springboard for our talk about marriage, but this morning I want to use it as our main text to talk about how the gospel transforms a local church. So I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 2, from verses 4 to 17, and as I do, as I read it, I'd like for you to try and notice all of the phrases that Peter uses to describe the church. Lots of phrases that he uses to describe the church. And and we'll have it on the screen, and I'll underline some of those phrases up there. I'm not literally going to take a Sharpie and underline the TV, by the way. We'll already have the underlines on there. Peter writes this, As you come to him, the living stone. So the living stone he's referring to is Jesus. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. but now you are the people of God. Once you have not, had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Love the family of believers. There it is, the family of believers. Fear God, honor the emperor. What a great passage that is. It's not just about the church, but it's, it's about Jesus. And there are some incredible descriptions of Jesus that Peter gives in this passage. But, but I want us to look at some of the images that Peter uses to describe the church. And, and there are at least 12 of them. Let's look at them. In verse 5, he uses the image of a spiritual house to describe the church, and and also a holy priesthood. In verse 7, he calls the church, you who believe. In verse 9, he says that the church, that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. In verse 10, we're called the people of God. In verse 11, we're described as foreigners and exiles. In verse 16, we're called free people. And then we're also called, God's slaves. Kind of an ironic uh, thing that they would use both of those images in the same verse. And I wish we had time to explore those two images more. I love those. Verse 17, he calls the church the family of believers. And so again, if we had time, we we could spend a week on each of these descriptions. Each of these images is just so powerful. Instead, if we just kind of look at all of these images as maybe one cluster and try to figure out what Peter is trying to say by using all of these images in such a short span. I think we could summarize it like this, that as a church, we are different than the world. We're different than the world. The church is different, and the gospel makes us different. The gospel transforms us into more than just some social club or charitable organization it, it, it transforms me to be a more loving person. And when I bring that to the community of believers and you do the same, it makes us a more loving, caring body with a unified mission. You see, the good news does something to a group of people who believe it together. And this is what Peter is saying. Again, he uses so many phrases for the church, but one of them that kind of sticks out is he calls us foreigners and exiles. Some translations say aliens, right? Peter is is talking to people who have grown up their entire lives in these Greek cities, and these Jewish communities, and he's saying, but now that you believe the gospel, now that you are a follower of Jesus, you're a foreigner. You no longer belong to this world. Do you ever feel that way? Like the older I get, the closer I get to Christ, the more uncomfortable I am with the ways of our world the more I feel out of place. Like just this past week with some stuff that's being pushed by some of our political leaders and it just seems so ridiculous and so out there and I just keep thinking to myself, what is going on here? What is going on in our world? And I just feel like I don't belong. I don't belong here. And that's actually a good thing that I feel that way because this world is not my home. So I shouldn't make myself comfortable it's not my home. You know, there was an early uh, Roman historian named Su- Suetonius, and he referred to Christians at that time as a different species. He used the Latin word genus to refer to, to Christians as like a different kind of human. Why did he feel this way? It's because their lifestyle and their behavior was so different than that of the first century Greco-Roman culture. And this is exactly what Peter is trying to get his, his, his readers to do. To be different. Some of you may remember reading 1 Peter 2 in the King James Version of the Bible. And in verse 9, the NIV calls, calls the church God's special possession. But in the King James, it refers to Christians as a peculiar people. Do Any of you remember that? We're a peculiar people. First and second, second century culture viewed Christians as weird, as peculiar. How, how were they Peculiar. Why did Roman writers refer to Christians as, as, as a different species? Well, there are a lot of reasons. Pastor Tim Kelly, Tim Keller, I'm sorry, gives ten reasons as to why they were considered so peculiar in those early, uh, in, that, in the early days of the church, in that culture that they were living in. So one of the reasons he gives is that they didn't go to these bloody and brutal gladiatorial type of games at the arena or participate in the pagan festivals. So, so he's saying they were considered antisocial. Secondly, they, they didn't generally serve in the military to support Caesar's conquest of other nations. Third, they were committed to the sanctity of life. Now, there were abortions back then, by the way, but they were very dangerous, so they were relatively rare. A more common practice was infanticide, or a practice called infant exposure. What this means is that these these women would have their babies, but they were unwanted infants to them. And so they would literally throw these infants onto garbage heaps, leaving them to die or to be taken by traitors and be sold into slavery or sold into prostitution. And yet Christians would come by and they would rescue these infants and take them in and take care of them. That was different. Fourth, he says they, they empowered women. Unlike Greco-Roman society, women were highly valued to Christians. And it was demonstrated by their Lord Jesus during his time on this earth. And we talked about this a little bit last week when we talked about marriage and this, this idea of mutual submission. They elevated women. They highly regarded them. Speaking of marriage, number five, he said that they were against sex outside of marriage. That was strange to unbelievers. Now, Roman Roman culture insisted that that married women of of social status, that they had to abstain from sex outside of marriage, but it was expected that men, even married men, would have sex with people lower on the status level. Slaves, prostitutes, even children. This this wasn't only allowed, it was regarded as unavoidable, since sex was mainly seen as as a mere physical appetite that was irresistible. But for Christians, they come along and they forbid sex outside of heterosexual marriage, which also meant that these Christians were different because they were opposed to homosexual behavior. Homosexual behavior is not anything new. You can read about it going all the way back to Genesis, but God did not tolerate it and neither did God's special possession, his peculiar people. Number seven, they were radically committed to helping the poor in society. You know, most of the earliest believers were poor themselves, yet they were generous. While it was expected for people to, to, to care for the poor among their family or their tribe, Christians were actually taking care of the poor outside of their family, outside of their tribe. And, and even during the urban plagues of that time, Christians characteristically didn't flee the city. Instead, they, they ran into the cities and they stayed and they cared for the sick and the dying of all groups oftentimes at the cost of their own life. Number eight, they were multi-ethnic in their gatherings, which would have been considered scandalous by the Romans. If you weren't Roman by birth, you were considered inferior to them. And yet, throughout the book of Acts, we see this remarkable unity between people of different races. Early on, when some Jewish Christians were trying to make sure that, that Gentiles became physically Jewish before becoming Christians. They were, they were ordering, oh, you've got, to, you've got to physically become a Jew before you become a Christian. And so they were saying that Gentiles weren't worthy to become Christians unless they did this. The apostles and the elders at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 made it very clear that the good news of Jesus Christ was good news for all who believe, regardless of race, and that you don't have to come become some other race or ethnicity to become a Christian. And Ephesians 2 is this incredible testimony of the importance of racial reconciliation as a fruit of the gospel among Christians. And and the reason that they were able to be so united is because of number nine. They believed that Jesus Christ was the only way to salvation. Again, this made them very different in the fiercely polytheistic culture that they lived in. And then number 10, they were thought to be different because... Many people considered Christians to be cannibals. Cannibals. Because they drank the blood and ate the flesh of their teacher. <laughs> now, obviously, we know that they were literally not, you know, eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. But like we do every Sunday here at Gateway, they gathered together and took communion to remember Jesus. So, can you see why they were? Persecuted. Why these Christians were rejected and misunderstood and marginalized by their society? They were different. You know, it seems like from a very young age, we just want to fit in. We we want to, you know, be like everyone else, and so we try so hard to fit in or blend into our culture. But let me just tell you, when we live by the transforming power of the gospel we won't fit in, and we can't fit in. We are like foreigners and exiles in this world. We are different. We are peculiar. So then how does the the good news play a part in this? Like, What should a Bible-preaching, gospel-driven, spirit-empowered local church look like? Well, Peter shows us two ways to be different as a group of people in this world. And one of the ways is that we rally around Jesus. We rally around Jesus. Peter would start this passage by saying, as you come to him, the living stone. This is Jesus. He's considered the living stone. Our our goal, our primary focus is Jesus. Remember the verse we read earlier in John chapter 12 together? Jesus said, And I, when I am lifted up from the the earth, will draw all people to myself. Another translation for lifted up is the word exalted. Exalted. When Jesus is exalted in our lives, in our relationships, in our church, he does the work of pulling people together. And so we rally around Jesus. We exalt and lift him up. I love what the Apostle Paul reminded the, the Colossian believers in chapter 3 of Colossians. He said, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all. All. And is in all. And so it doesn't matter your background, your ethnicity, your race, your status. Christ is all. Look, as a local fellowship, we may come from different backgrounds, different cultures, different upbringings, different races. We may have some different political uh, differences in political issues. We may even have some differences theologically. But we don't have different value. And we cannot disagree about who Jesus is. That is a line we are not willing to negotiate. He is the center of heaven. He is the center of our lives. He is the center of our church. He is the center of our community. Christ is all. And this is the truth. Uh, and this truth of who Jesus is allows us to, as Ephesians 4.3 says, keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. So we have a lot of differences, but if Christ is front and center and we rally around him, that's how we are united. Some of you might remember, as I said earlier, that Peter's name meant rock or stone. In the Greek, the the word is Petros. That's how we get Peter, Petros. Well, in this section of scripture, Peter uses the word stone or rock in several ways when he's referring to Jesus. He, He refers to Jesus as the living stone, and that's a capital S, living stone. And then he calls us as believers living stones, lowercase s, Peter was writing this after the resurrection of Jesus. And he wanted his readers to understand that this spiritual building called the church was not built on a bad foundation, on a dead foundation. Instead, it's built on the strong foundation, living foundation of the resurrected Christ. Peter would also call Jesus the cornerstone. So Peter would ref- uh, Paul would also refer to Jesus as the chief cornerstone, So not only is he the foundation upon which we build, but he is the cornerstone. So this cornerstone, when you're building a block building, is the first stone that would be put down. It would be the first stone to be put down for the building to give it a strong foundation and to keep the walls in line. Every other stone that you put down... is is then placed in line with this cornerstone. And so as stones in this spiritual house called the church, we build our lives on Jesus. We align ourselves with Jesus. If a cornerstone is off, then the building is going to be off. It's going to be crooked. But our cornerstone is never off. Jesus is never off. We may be off, but he never is. So He's called the living stone. He's called the cornerstone. He's also called the precious stone. Peter calls him the precious stone. So the Greek word that we have translated here as precious is the word time. And it implies great value of something. Now, Peter is the only New Testament writer to use this word in the way that he does. It's nor- it was normally used by ancient writers when describing valuable stones. Like in the book of Revelation, John uses this term time five times to refer to precious stones. Stones, jewels, uh, gems. you know he, he would refer to the, the jewels that were decorated in the walls of heaven as precious jewels. But Peter uses this word in a little different way. Uh, in First 1 Peter 119, he uses it to refer to the blood of Jesus at Calvary. He says that our redemption came about by the, the precious blood of Jesus. In First Peter two which we just read, he, he, he uses it three times to refer to this valuable stone, capital S, Jesus. He's the precious stone. And in Second Peter 1.4, he uses it to refer to the promises of God that come through Jesus Christ. He writes, he has given us his very great and precious promises. So we've got precious promises, precious savior, precious blood of Jesus. What a a great descriptive word for what Jesus has done for us and who Jesus is. He is precious to us. And as you think about that, can, can you see why Peter insisted that because of the good news, we rally around Jesus because he is precious to us. So the church is different. We rally around Jesus and we bear his name because he is God. Because he is king of kings and lord of lords. Because he is our lord and our savior. We come to him, the living stone. We rally around him. What is another distinctive of the church that Peter points out? He points out that we're different because we serve our community. We serve our community. So yes, we rally around Jesus and we worship and adore him. But that's not all we do, right? In our vision statement at Gateway, we say that we are here to do what? Hopefully you know this, to love God, love people, and serve. There's something different about us. We serve, and that's strange. This wasn't easy to do in the first century, and maybe it feels like it's getting more and more difficult today. But as I said earlier, the, the pagan community back then was very suspicious of these Christians. There was this feeling in the first century towards Christians that that because they held such extreme values and narrow beliefs, that they would be absolutely no good to society. And that was actually some of their rationale that they used by that the Romans used to begin persecuting and killing Christians. They thought that they were a danger to society. Kinda sounds familiar lately, doesn't it? So notice at the end of our passage what Peter says it means to live then a transformed life, transformed by the good news, to be God's people and to win the respect of their culture. In verse 12, he says to them, to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, though they slander you, though they make stuff up about you, live such good lives that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then down in verse 15, he says, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Shut them up with how good you are, with how you serve them, right? And that's exactly what these Christians did. They they did have peculiar and exclusive beliefs, but despite this, they were far more loving and self-sacrificing than the pagans. They helped everyone, including the poor, the diseased, the imprisoned. When when the rich Roman citizens were running away from the sick and the poor, the Christians were running in to help and serve. By serving the people of their community, they were serving their Savior. So by the time the 300s came, there was an emperor named Julian who who reigned over the Roman Empire. He was also called Julian the Apostate. So by this point, Christianity had been growing and beginning to flourish. But under Julian's reign, he he wanted to take things back, take things back to paganism. So Julian decided to reinstitute paganism in Rome, but he ran into some opposition The trouble with this move was that Christianity had this incredible momentum. And Christianity was known so much for its generosity and its benevolence. And so when Julian reinstated the pagan priests, it just didn't take off. And so we actually have a fragment fragment of a letter that he wrote. And in this letter, Emperor Julian, he's venting. He's he's complaining about how he can't get paganism going again because of these Christians. So listen to a couple of things that he wrote. This is about uh, 355 to 365 AD. Listen to what he's complaining about. He writes this. He says, recent Christian growth is caused by their moral character, even if pretended, even if Even if they're faking it, it's growing because of their moral character and by their benevolence towards others. So he's saying, we have a problem. The Christians are too moral, and we can't compete with that. And then he goes on, he says, I think that when the poor happened to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, meaning these pagan priests, the impious Galileans, that's the Christians, they observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence, to taking care of them. So he's saying, we neglect them. For crying out loud, they start caring for them. (laughs) And then it gets worse. He says, the impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. He's saying, these these Christians, they keep doing all of these good things. They keep taking care of the poor and keep being so generous and keep living so morally upright. They just keep being so benevolent. And no one's going to want to join our cult if they keep doing this. (laughs) They're turning the empire upside down. In other words, these Christians were different and they made a difference. They were different And they were making a difference. And they did so without the use of Facebook to blast all their complaints out to the whole world. Imagine that, right? Instead, here's how their voices were heard. Instead, they lived such good lives among the pagans that though they were accused of doing wrong, this pagan culture saw their good deeds and would glorify God on the day he visits us. You know what's gotten the most attention from the people in our community about our church? It's it's not our band. It's certainly not my preaching, right? It's, It's not our website. It's not our nice building. It's things like our Jesus prom. It's things like our work in Haiti. It's our recovery house. It's the way we've served the schools It's our VBS that reaches out to so many kids. It's our benevolence. And I hope it's also because the people who make up this local body of believers, they call Gateway their home church, that these individuals are serving people in their circle of influence regularly as well. So why did the early church serve? Why why do we do these things? because our lives have been transformed by the gospel. We are a peculiar people declaring the praise of the one who has called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you owed us nothing, but you gave us everything. We thank you that you have commissioned us to be your body and to go into all nations and make disciples. God, we thank you that you have called us to be different. And we pray that that by being different, that we would make a difference for you. That we wouldn't point glory back to ourselves, but because we rally around Jesus and serve because of what he's done for us, That we point people back to Jesus. God, I pray that it is He who receives all glory and honor in our lives and in our church. God, may we be known for our love because it's a direct reflection of the one who loves us. So, God, I pray that we would be transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray, amen. So as we've said throughout the series and we say often, this gospel, this good news demands a response. And so if you have a response to make, if you have a decision to make about following Jesus or just need some prayer this morning, I'm gonna be up here to you right as we sing this last song. We'd love to talk with you and, and pray with you. Will you stand and sing?